Scripture passage listed in the bulletin is John 6, 37 through 40. I do intend to read that, but I may um, very well read more than that. What I'm hoping to give to you is that in a lot of ways, when we're looking at something like the Canons of Dort, it's difficult to find one passage that summarizes clearly that teaching. I think John 6, 37 through 40 is good, um, but maybe only gives one aspect or element of uh, the teaching of Christ's redemption, what he accomplished on the cross. Um, so I'm going to read an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53, and, and also try to help you see the intentionality behind that language, and then we'll come and read John uh, 6, 37 through 40, and then we also are going to read a passage uh, in Revelation chapter 5. So let's pray first. Father, will you open our eyes to the teaching of your word here tonight concerning our great salvation that was purchased for us, purchased, accomplished for us. On the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of Christ's crucifixion, his passion, his suffering. I want you to uh, pay attention particularly to the intentionality of the language of the prophet here, okay? Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there is a very personal and intentional language there. Now move forward to your New Testament, to John chapter 6. This is Christ speaking right after the healing of the man at the, lame, uh, at the pool and the feeding of the 5,000. And in verse 37 through 40, he says these words. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up. At the last day. We also turn to John chapter 10. This carries on the same language that Isaiah used in his prophecy about we all like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way. Christ, describing himself as the good shepherd, says these personal words in chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays, his de- his, uh, lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep, so when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and they shall be one flock and one shepherd. And then going to Revelation chapter 5. This is John's vision. Where we're told that he sees the scroll and that no one is worthy to open up the scroll. And then in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. and They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. So hopefully as we go through, we may take time to look more particularly at some of these passages and try to pull out for you uh, why they were chosen when we're discussing this topic in particular. Tonight we're looking at that dreaded L. We've been for a while away from the canons of Dort, but I want to remind you it's the 400th anniversary since the Synod of Dort came together and wrote for us the canons of Dort, which described to us the gracious character of God's salvation. That's why we often call them the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of God's amazing grace, the amazing character of God's grace. And so far, we kind of did an introductory sermon that explained the reason why the Synod of Dort historically came about. Then... uh, The last time we were here, we looked at the first head of doctrine in the Canons of Dort, which is unconditional election. We usually think of the five points of Calvinism as tulip, and Dutch people love their tulips, so it's quite great that we have this acronym. But in the Canons of Dort, it's not ordered in that order. 
total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. It's actually ordered old tip. And the reason the writers of the Canons of Dort did this is because they understood that everything flows out from God's decree of unconditional election. God decreeing before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 says, to have a people. And therefore, what else comes after is a flowing out from God's decree, God's decree of unconditional election. So we've looked at unconditional election. Today we're looking at what is often called limited atonement. Limited atonement is what we're looking at today, the L of the tulip. Um, but the first time you hear that word limited, it doesn't feel very right because it feels like we're, we're saying is that the atonement is less than what other people are saying. The Arminians have the unlimited atonement. Ooh, unlimited. That's the kind of data plan I have on my cell phone. That's good, right? Unlimited. And we've got limited. Oh, I don't really know about that. Is that really the right way to say it? Well, that's why many have called it particular redemption or definite atonement. And we'll get to that. But the L. The L is probably the most controversial doctrine from the canons of Dort. And it's one that many people don't like. And some will even say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And when someone says they're a four-point Calvinist, what they mean is they don't want the L. Because there's an inherent tension in the L. Because there are scriptures that seem to speak to a universal character or nature of Christ's atonement. So one joke I said was, what are... What are four-point Calvinists' favorite uh, Christmas hymn? What's, the, what's a four-point Calvinist's favorite Christmas hymn? Noel. <laughs> so we're going to look at limited atonement tonight. And I, I'm more of a fan of particular redemption or you could say um, definite atonement. We'll get to that. So our theme tonight is Christ's work on the cross. Actually, that's the important word, saves rather than only making salvation possible. And that's the other important word, important word. Christ's work on the cross actually saves rather than making salvation possible. And we're going to look at this in three points. The necessity, of atonement, and I'm just going to, the second point is the sufficiency of atonement. And the third point is the efficacy of atonement. And in order to not be confusing about these two words, sufficiency, efficacy, sufficiency means uh, that the atonement is enough. And the efficacy means what is the effect of the atonement, okay? What's the effect of Christ's atonement? Um, this is actually the shortest 
head of doctrine in the canons of Dort. And because of that, I think I'm just going to briefly summarize for you the canons of Dort's argument. Article 1 starts by basically describing the necessity of atonement. Article 2 talks about how because atonement is necessary and because we can't accomplish it for ourselves, we need a substitute or what the canons call a surety. Article 3 says that the atonement is sufficient. Article 4 describes the identity of the substitute and the re- is the reason why the, uh, the atonement is sufficient because Christ as the God-man is eternal and infinite. Uh, Article 5 describes the basis or the foundation for the gospel proclamation. Article 6 says the reality of human responsibility is that if someone does not believe, uh, it's not because of any, uh, any devaluing of Christ's atonement, but it's actually uh, placed on them. Article 7 is the gracious gift of faith. Article 8 is the effect of the atonement. And Article 9 is the completion of the atonement's purpose. And I think I'm going to read Article 8 for you guys because I think that's the heart of what the canons are teaching. And this is in page 100 in the back of your Green Salter hymnals if you want to look at it, but you don't need to go there if you don't want. This was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his Son should extend to all the elect for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation, that is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language, you hear the, the language of Revelation 5 there, all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them by his death, should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, and having faithfully preserved them, even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. That's the heart of the gospel. Some big words there, but let's start by looking at this first point, the necessity of atonement. And I told you that's really where, um, where the canons begin. So now having talked about unconditional election, that God has chosen the people in Christ before the foundation of the world, not because of anything in them, but on the basis of his own gracious desire, decree, will, uh, we're saved. Therefore, how does this accomplished? How is this unconditional election accomplished because we are fallen in Adam? And he's gonna, the, the, the canons are going to talk more about this when we get to total depravity. But they have to say this here right at the beginning. That the reason why the atonement is necessary is because God is not only merciful, but he is just. And because we have offended God's grace and God's glory by sinning, he cannot simply just say, oh, you sin? Okay, that's fine. Not a big deal. You know, I'll just let it go. I'll just let that float. Just, you know. Because then God would not be God. He would not be righteous. The offense against his glory must be made right. 
Because he's not only merciful, he is just. And this is why Paul in Romans describes this argument. How can God both be just and the justifier of sinful people? This is what makes the atonement necessary. This is what makes salvation through Christ's redemptive work on the cross necessary. It is a kissing of mercy and justice. That is to say that the most gracious, the, the biggest revelation, the biggest revelation of God's grace and justice is the cross. Because on the cross, the punishment that we deserve for our sins was given to Christ so that on the cross, Christ may earn for us God's grace. That's the necessity of the atonement. The necessity of an atonement because we are not at one with God. We have been separated from God because of our sin. What about the second point, the sufficiency? Of the atonement. And here is at the heart of what I was talking about earlier. The reason why people don't like limited atonement. Because they read things like uh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Or they read something like 1 John 2.2. 2. Which says, we've got, uh, Christ is a propiti- propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. I'm just not even going to try to spell that. Our sins. And world. And they grapple with this idea that Christ could have came and died only for a particular group of people. And this was at the heart of the Arminian controversy, and it's still here today because there is a a particular presentation of the gospel, isn't there? A particular version of evangelism that goes something like this. Um, God loves you. Christ died for you. So uh, believe in it. God loves you. Christ died for you. Um, But there's some tension here, right? Because if Christ did come, if God did send Christ into this world to redeem a particular group of people, you can't just go around saying, God loves you, Christ died for you. So how do we evangelize? And so the Arminians said, this 
this teaching about Christ's particular redemption, this teaching about Christ coming to save a particular group of people is going to cut at the heart of evangelism, of our fervency to want to see people reached with the gospel, right? And so that's why in the Canons of Dort, they talked about the sufficiency of the atonement. And this is beautiful. You need to hear this, okay? They said in the canons, and this is the teaching of the scriptures, that the basis for the proclamation of the gospel is not a hypothetical salvation. It's not hypothetical. But actual. That is to say that when people go into indigenous lands to bring the gospel to them. They can say, without a doubt, that the hope that they have is not that they can maybe convince them that Jesus died for their sins. And only if they are convinced that Jesus actually died for their sins. No, their sure foundation and promises that Jesus has purchased, the Lamb has purchased with his blood a people from out of every tribe, tongue, nation. So it's not hypothetical. It's actual. Christ didn't make salvation possible. He actually accomplished it. And so, this is the basis for the preaching of the gospel. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world. That Christ's coming and dying on the cross is an expression of universal character in the sharing of the gospel. But that does not mean that it was God's intent to save everyone in the cross. Okay? This is what it says in the canons. The death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. Or what's it saying here? It's saying that if Christ had came and died for one person, he would not have had to suffer any more or any less than he actually suffered. If Christ came to die for all people, that is to say, literally every single human being, he would not have had to suffer any more or less than he actually suffered. The value of Christ's suffering His sacrifice is not based on how many people he's dying for. Do you get that? It's based on who he is. The God-man. So what I'm trying to say is, sometimes we think quantitatively. So if Christ died for 
this many thousands of peoples or millions of peoples, then this many drops of his blood is required and so on. That's not how this works. The infinite worth and value of Christ's sacrifice is not dependent upon how many people he died for. It's dependent upon who he is. And that's what it says in Article 4. This death is of such infinite value and dignity because the person who submitted to it was not only really man and perfectly holy, but also the only begotten Son of God and of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit which qualifications were necessary to constitute him a savior for us. And moreover, because it was attended with a sense of the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. Because he is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the sacrifice is of infinite value and worth. Not because of how many people he died for. And there because, therefore, because The sacrifice that Christ gave for us accomplished salvation. And therefore, because the sacrifice of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, is of infinite value because of who he is, the gospel should be proclaimed, what says here, promiscuously. That's the wordings of the canon, the wording of the canons. The gospel should be proclaimed to all because... As the gospel is proclaimed, all whom Christ have died for will believe. That's why we preach the gospel. That's the sufficiency of the atonement. Let's talk about the efficacy of the atonement. Because that goes against what the Armenians were saying, which is, Oh, if we say this, then people aren't going to want to share the gospel. No, this is the basis for our confidence in sharing the gospel. So, the efficacy of the atonement. Or you could put it this way, the purpose, the intent of the atonement. What does it mean? What was it for? And that's what the, the canons end speaking of. And it's really what, uh, the reason why I chose John 6.37. If you look at John 6.37, it says, All that the Father, Father, gives, all that the Father gives, To Christ will come. So, a lot of times we read this and we don't think about this, okay? What Christ is talking about here is that there is a group of people that the Father has given to the Son. And there are all kinds of words in the Scriptures that talk about these people. Israel. Congregation. Beloved. Bride. 
elect. So on and so forth. And all these have wonderful and deep and impactful meanings. There's a group of people which the Father has given, and that's, called, that's the unconditional election that we've talked about, right? To Christ. And they will come to him. And whoever comes to Christ will never drive away. For Christ has come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent him. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So Christ here is saying, I've come down from heaven to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that all that he has given to me, I will purchase and I will not lose one of them. And you can look all over the scriptures that speaks of this. I'd say one of the clearest passages that speaks of this that we don't often think about in this way uh, is Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is profound. It speaks of marriage as a mystery. And it says this about husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave him up, himself up for her. So there is a particularity to this, right? A particular group in mind. A purpose, an intent that Christ came to accomplish. Now, why is this important? Why are we saying this is important? Well, this is important for our assurance. And this is important for the truthfulness of the gospel. Paul has very personal words in Galatians when he speaks of what Christ has done for him. He says, I was crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We all, by faith, are united with Christ. That when we look upon the cross, we should think that Christ was going to the cross with that book of life in his hand that had our names written in it. And no matter what kind of suffering he went through, he would not let go of that book of life. That he knew each and every one of our names. When he went to the cross. This is very personal. It's very meaningful. It's very devotional. That our union with Christ. Means. That when he. Had his hands nailed to the cross. Our hands were nailed to the cross. When he. Was lifted up. We. We. Were lifted up. When he suffered and died on the cross, we suffered and died on the cross. When he was buried in the tomb, we were buried in the tomb. When he was resurrected to new life, we were resurrected to new life. And if there is not a personality that you can attach to that, if there's not a real group of individuals that you can attach to that, if it was only making salvation possible, then Christ went to the cross and suffered all that, hoping that somebody would believe in him. Rather, Christ went to the cross 
And on the cross, he actually suffered so that we may believe in him. See what I'm saying here? Because there's a lot of truth that we can agree with that the Arminians, that if we want to call them that, say. And that is that the gospel should be preached to everyone and, and so on and so forth. But we are actually saying that, no, we agree with you up to the point, And then we disagree with you because we actually believe that the atonement accomplished more than you believe. Because we really truly believe that people are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so therefore, Christ not only needed to make salvation possible so that some of us who are smart enough or intelligent enough to look upon Christ and know that we need salvation could distinguish ourselves from all the other people who don't know or who aren't smart enough. But we actually believe that our dead in sins and trespasses means that Christ not only needed to make salvation possible for us, he needed to accomplish it by, in his death, purchasing for us faith, repentance. But these, in and of themselves, are gifts of God's grace to us. I want to close by bringing up a, an argument that John Owen long ago used to talk about what it means that we believe in particular redemption or definite atonement. This is what he said. He said, the Father imposed his wrath that was due to us, and the Son underwent the punishment that was due to us for either three different kinds of people, three different things. One, all the sins of all men. Two, all the sins of some men. And three, some of the sins of all men. So those are your three options. Christ died for all the sins of all men, all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. And then he says, if number three is true, all men have some sins to answer for, so no one would be saved. So that can't be it. Because we're dead in our sins and trespasses. How can we ever answer to some of our sins? If the second is true, all the sins of some men, then Christ then Christ in their stead suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the whole world, and this is the truth. So this, this is what the Bible teaches. And then, lastly, but if the first be the case, all the sins of all men, which is what the Arminians are arguing for, why are not all men free from the punishment of uh, death due unto their sins? So what, what he's asking here is, you don't believe that everyone is saved, do you? Because that's universalism. Everyone is saved. No, no, you have to believe in order to 
be saved. You have to have faith. So the reason why some people are saved and other people aren't saved is because of the sin of unbelief. And here's where John Owen closes the casket on this. He says, is unbelief a sin or is it not? If it is a sin, then Christ suffered for the punishment due unto it. Because all the sins of all men Christ died for, right? Or he did not. If he did, why must that keep them more than their other sins for which he died? And if he did not, he did not die for all their sins. So... John Owen is saying this is the only logical answer, but it's not only logical, it's biblical. It's the basis for the proclamation of the gospel, and it is the basis for our assurance of our salvation. That Christ, his work on the cross, being sent by his Father to accomplish his work, actually saves rather than only making salvation possible. And I'll finish with this illustration, so hopefully this will help you see. The way I describe it is like this. Let's say I had a bowl of candy up here. And I said, this is the atoning work of Christ. And I stood up here, and I offered it to you all. But the only people who were able to benefit from the atoning work of Christ on the cross were those of you who stood up, came up here, and grabbed a piece of candy out of my bowl. That's one way of looking at this. But this is what the gospel truly is. And this is what the Bible teaches. And this is what's being put forth in the canons of door. Christ and his atoning work provides a bowl of candy. Then he goes around. He gives you the gift of faith. He opens your hand. And he puts a piece of candy right in your hand. I wish I had candy for real. (laughs) That is the gospel. That's what Christ accomplished on the cross And it's so much bigger, and it's so so much more wonderful, and so much more beautiful, because it tells you, and reminds you and me, that there's nothing in me that made me be redeemed. There's nothing that makes me different from anyone else, except for the grace of God. And that should lead us to praise God for such a great salvation that we have. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We could look at your word, learn from it, and see that in the death of Christ, you have accomplished salvation, 
of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A number so large it cannot even be counted. It could be something like the sand on the seashores or the stars in the sky. Lord, the atonement of Christ is not limited. But God, it is powerful. It is effective. That all that Christ accomplished was not simply an opportunity for us to come to salvation. But our salvation from start to finish. That the author of Hebrews could say that Christ is the author, the originator, the creator, and the perfecter, the finisher, the completer of our salvation. May we put our trust in him, in that Christ who died for us, who died in our place, truly as our substitute, that we may live forever with you and with Christ, the lamb who was slain all the days of eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.